Well, good evening, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors at Spark Church, and we are delighted to host you for this live online learning event. During the Q&R portion of our time, we're going to be taking questions from Slido. It's a place where you can submit questions, but also upvote on questions submitted so that we can make the most of our time. Go to sli.do and enter the event number 87447 to interact. I want to say a special thank you to our partner churches, Sequoia Church in Redwood City, as well as the River Church in San Jose. Thank you so much for your partnership and sponsorship of this event, helping to bring critical conversations like this to a wider audience. We so appreciate you. And of course, to those of you who are not affiliated with any of our churches, you are also especially welcome. We are so glad that you are here. Pastor Brad Wong from the River is going to open us in a word of prayer, and then we're going to get right to it. Thank you for coming tonight. I welcome you to join me in a brief moment of prayer. Lord, we thank you for the gift of this day. We acknowledge that this is a day that you have made, that the life and breath we have is a gift of love from you. And so we do welcome your presence with all our hearts. We give you thanks for Dr. McCauley, for the gift of his life and story for his wisdom and his intellect. We pray your blessing upon his ministry. We pray tonight, pour out your Holy Spirit afresh upon your servant, that his words would come to us with great power. And we do pray for your people all across this land in these troubling times. And we pray for ourselves here this evening. Pour out your spirit upon us afresh, that the rigid structures that disfigure our patterns of thought and communal life might be broken up, that you would enlighten us with holy wisdom and fill our hearts with Christ-like courage, that we might live in this season as the instruments of your peace in an increasingly hostile world. Bless us by the presence of your Spirit this evening. We pray all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen. The Reverend Dr. Esau McCauley holds a Master of Divinity from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, a Master of Sacred Theology degree from Nashita House Theological Seminary, and a PhD in New Testament from the University of St. Andrew, where he studied under the direction of N.T. Wright. His first book, Sharing in the Son's Inheritance, Davidic Messianism and Paul's Worldwide Interpretation of the Abrahamic Land Promise in Galatians, was published in 2019. He is here tonight to discuss his most recent book, Reading While Black, African-American Inter Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. He is currently an assistant professor of New Testament at Wheaton College, Illinois, and the host of the Disruptors podcast sponsored by InterVarsity Press. Everyone, let's please welcome the Reverend Dr. Esau McCauley. Dr. McCauley, it is so good to see you. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you guys? How are you doing this evening? I'm doing pretty well. We're going to hope and see if my kids stay in bed because they're, <laughs> they're supposed to be in bed. But I hear, oh, yeah. I, hear the, I hear the steps. 
Yeah. So, we'll so now you're you're in Illinois, so we got a little bit of a time difference. So we especially appreciate the uh, uh, you staying up a little bit late and yeah, having to deal with kids during all of this. Um, I want to uh, once again acknowledge, as I did in the introduction video, everybody that's joining us from the river and Sequoia, and then all over the public. This is um, very exciting, and I'm so appreciative to you to joining us. You've been all over the place uh, since your book has published um and it's been fantastic actually to see your work get out there um it's got to be a wild ride for you what i'd like to do is just start with uh, the introduction question which is to give you an opportunity to give us to the five to seven minute elevator pitch of your book and then i've got a bunch of prepared questions and then after that we'll take some questions from slido does that sound like a good plan that sounds great thanks a lot all right. And then please uh, drive however you feel the conversation needs to go, whatever you feel is up on uh, up on your mind. So the first uh, question is, give us the five to seven minute elevator pitch of this wonderfully brilliant book, Reading While Black. Why did you write it? And what are you hoping happens in the world as a result of the work that you're doing? I mean, asking like someone why they wrote a book is always an interesting thing to think about because it feels like you would answer it the same way every time. But it's like what strikes you in the moment when you hear it. I guess I've heard a lot of musicians talk about how they have their whole lives to write their first album and then like 18 or 24 months to write their second album because the first (laughs) album is all the stuff you've always thought about. And so in some sense, like the stuff in Reading While Black are the kinds of questions that I've been asking my entire life. And so there's issues that I struggle with. So when I talk about the Bible and slavery, it's not that I have the answers that were in that chapter my whole life, but it's a question that I've returned to over and over again. When you talk about, like, what does the Bible have to say about my ethnic identity? Something I wrestle with. But I would say that um, as far as how the book started, you can say the first rumblings would have been like the Trayvon Martin case. And before that, I had done, you know, mostly traditional biblical studies, you know, the Greek, the Hebrew, grammatical, historical stuff. And I was just kind of rolling down the road on my academic career. But the Trayvon Martin case made me think, wow, there's a lot of stuff going on in the culture that my scholarship currently wasn't touching. But I, at that point, this is 2013, I had, I had already gotten into a PhD program. So I just went and did the dissertation because that's what you got to do to graduate. <laughs> Towards the back end of that dissertation was the end of the Obama presidency and the beginning of what would become the Trump presidency. We didn't know it at the time. But it was a summer similar to the summer we just went through and a fall where there was, a, I mean, obviously apart from the pandemic, where there was just a lot of issues of police injustice and there's a lot of African-Americans, there's a lot of videos that were out and – I I remember asking myself again, like, how does my scholarship touch on the lived experiences Mm. of black people, the Mm. community that shaped me? And so I said, man, I have to write something that is relevant to that community. And the first kind of idea, there's actually two parts of the book that came first to my brain, was I need to write something about policing. Mm. So the chapter on policing in the book, if anyone who's read it, that was the first conceptual thing that I wanted to do. And then the second one was like the the introduction story. It was like the South got something to say. That was the, that's the name of chapter one, where it begins with Outcast, the source of wars, and talking about making making sense to be black and Christian. Yeah. And so I thought I needed to find a way to do biblical studies in a way that felt authentic to my experience and that was relevant to the community that shaped me. And so the, the, what I hope the book is, is a book that takes the scriptures as God's word to us for our good seriously. Um, and that presents a way of Bible reading that functions basically like the title says, as an exercise in hope. Mm. And the argument of the book is that the Bible 
read rightly, can be a source of hope to African-Americans mm-hmm. and other people in our context. Yeah. So yeah. What, do you, what do I hope the, the book does? If you read the book and you come, you come, you finish the book and you feel like, man, I can continue to be Christian for another week, another month, another year, then it's done its job. Wow. So that's probably what I want to say. I want, I want to advocate for a way of Bible reading that gives people hope. Yeah. Okay. So, um, man, we're going to touch on all that. And I'd like to actually dig in a little bit to the Romans 13 exegesis that you do, because I mean, that was invoked by, you know, the attorney general, a previous attorney general. So it's made its way into the public conversation. And what you do with that passage is really, I think, uh, uh, not only a wonderful exegesis of Romans 13, but a wonderful example of how to even do biblical exegesis in the first place, which is the whole point. So I want to start with this question, and then of course, interrupt me if you want to interject something. Yeah. I want to start with this, the talking book by Alan Dwight Callahan. Which I, Would, cite, I, cite, I, yep. I cite quite a bit in the book. Yeah, Th- this is what, uh, I think I got it right here. Um, what was so, the, the phenomena of the Bible within African-American history, I think is kind of the foundation upon which all of the work that you do and, and um, some of the conversations that we've had grow out of. It. And this quote, I mean, there's so much in here, but this quote seems to sum up a little bit of um, where this it starts from. Evangelicalism would make the Bible the most accessible literature in America. African-American evangelicals would make it the most dangerous. And what I found fascinating by reading uh, this, which I got referenced by reading your book, okay. is that there, there's a phenomena here that the very text that was used to oppress the slaves in America became the text of liberation. My question for you is, how did that happen? Because I feel like your work is building off of that same tradition in some ways. Um, yeah. I, I don't know if you would say it that way, but can you it give w- us a little bit of yeah. Can you give us some of the history of, of how did that happen? And because it feels like that's still happening today. The very text that is used to oppress can potentially one day or even right now in this minute, in this conversation, become a text of liberation. So what I want to say is, and this is going to sound overly simplistic, they read it. <laughs> <laughs> and this, and, and this, and this yes. is important. They talk about the slave Bible, the one that was given to the slaves that was that was edited. And they said in certain places, 60% of the, the Bible was edited out and given to the slaves. Yeah. So in the, in the Bible that was given to the slaves, the book of Exodus was gone, basically. And the point is, oh, and this is, this, is, this is very important, the slave masters themselves knew that if the slaves got an unfiltered access to these texts, it would be a problem, it would be a problem for them. Right. And so what happened in the African-American appropriation of the Bible is they read the Bible correctly hmm. because the Bible, especially the Old Testament is written from a, from a place of, of the people who were oppressed, right? These, right. these are the Israelites who were stepped on by the Egyptians, even under the, the, the Davidic and, and Solomonic empire, Israel was never the most powerful nation around it. There was always a bigger kingdom. And so the Bible is written for the most part from the perspective of people who are stepped on and ignored. And so when you give a stepped on and ignored people access to this book and they say, well, hold on, the same God that liberates the slaves might liberate me as a slave. The same God that says you should have, you should have compassion upon people because you remember how you were treated in Israel. So in, in the Old Testament, the um, the experience of slavery was supposed to create a certain sensibility towards other enslaved and, and oppressed peoples. And so when, when, so when the slaves started reading this, they were like, well, hold on. 
this text says something much different than what we were told. Mm. And so Bible reading, and this is where Callahan has it right, Bible reading itself has always been dangerous mm. to those who are in power, even Christianity. Christianity was like, what, 0.0001% of the Roman Empire during the time in which these texts were read? Yeah. And so the Bible is written from the perspective of people without political or cultural power. Yeah. And so or cultural power often see themselves in these stories. And so that's the reason why I think that the Bible was a ready-made resource to push back upon um, narratives of oppression, yeah. mostly because God is a God who loves all people and who wants people to flourish. Yeah. And he thinks that flourishing comes through obedience and, and a relationship with him. And so the African-American Christians saw that, understood it, believed it, and put it into practice. Yeah, and Callahan goes on to describe how the education was stripped away from African Americans because you, they started to realize, oh, if we we teach blacks how to read, then they're going to actually have you know more access. So that's that began a whole a whole other issue regarding education and stuff like that. So what what I always like to say is that a lie can only be put in held in place by violence, hmm. right? So when when a culture is lying to people about who they are and what they are. And the slave culture of the United States lied about what a black person was. That was only, that can only be enforced violently. And that isn't just like the whip and the chain, it's the violent suppression of information. Yeah. And the most dangerous thing to a lie is the truth. And the African-American Christian tradition got access to the truth through the word of God. Yeah. Okay. So let's push on some of the nuance of that because you actually uh, explicate further you and you make the argument that African Americans were reading their Bible correctly, but you also kind of have to make that argument in your book as well. Um, for example, uh, I think I got the quote here where everybody ultimately is reading the Bible from their own locations. And so I'm presuming that some of what you wrote is preempting a, a criticism that you knew that you were going to get. Why are you writing a book about, you know, black interpretation? Shouldn't we just be reading the Bible, right? So you deal yeah. with that. So explain to us a little bit about how you just said they read the Bible correctly, but yet there's, there still seems to be some nuance in how to explain yeah. what correctly means when we're all coming from a particular location, whether that be a white interpretation, an Asian interpretation, you know, a Latin yeah. interpretation, etc. So one of the things that's important to do is to point out the hypocrisy in this conversation. And I've said this in other places, like nobody really got mad when they talked about when we talked about Celtic Christianity and the Celtic contributions to the Christian tradition. Nobody gets upset when we talk. about. I mean, we actually have this thing called Anglophiles, right? Lovers of British culture. And we talk about the, the distinctive personality of, of British literature and British theology and how British theology and British evangelicalism is different in temperament and tone than American evangelicalism, which is also different than if you think about something like Australian evangelicalism. Mm -hmm. So we actually understand this as a global phenomenon. We don't get upset about it. It only becomes a problem when you talk about ethnic groups in the United States. And what I'm talking about when I, so I just like let's just put that like that yep. first layer of the fact that we have to defend this is itself not necessarily normal. The second thing I want to say is when you acknowledge social location, you don't deny the objective truth of a text. Mm -hmm. You're talking about the ways in which the, the, your experiences influence the kinds of questions that you ask and the things that you see. So, for example, if you if you um, and, and I say the best way to think about this is to think about like 
teaching a youth group or teaching in in a, in a um in an elderly home. So you say, okay, I'm going to speak to to 15, 22, um, 15 high schoolers, and you open up Ephesians, you go, oh, I never really thought about how this text actually speaks directly to the experience of someone dealing with insecurity. And what actually happens is the moment you begin to think about a certain community, it changes the the questions that you ask, and sometimes changing that. That, that set of questions actually gives you insight into the text. So, oh, this was always there, but I never thought to look. And so I'm talking about how social location influences the ways in which we approach text. It doesn't actually change the text. It gives us different avenues. And so that means that sometimes our social location can make us good readers of text, and they can also make us bad readers of text. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes our social location or our motivations can cause us to read the text poorly. And so if you want to say, I'm a slave master, and I'm looking for some justification for slavery. And so I'm going into the Bible to say, is there some kind of way where I can find to square who I, what I'm doing that is objectively sinful with God's word? And so your social location and your desires are making you a bad reader. Now, if I'm an enslaved person, and I say, well, what is the Bible to speak about my enslaved experience? Then that's actually going to make me more apt to read it correctly because the Bible does speak against um, the experiences of slavery. And so that's what I mean when I talk about social location. It's how having in your mind a certain community allows you to see different nuances. And it's also the ways in which our experiences and our location may distort it. And so that's the reason why I talk mm-hmm. about truth emerging in a community. So we need one another to balance out our inadequacies so that together we might discern the mind of Christ. And so reading while black doesn't mean that only black people have access to truth or that black people see things that nobody else can see. African-Americans sometimes influence the things that we see in the text. And sometimes those things that we see in the text can give insight to the wider church. And so when people read my book, they will go, oh, I never thought about it that way, but he might be right exegetically. Mm-hmm. But I came to some of those questions and answers and clustering of text because I was I was trying to deal with a particular set of issues. Yeah, love it, love it. Uh, let me add one additional factor that one of the ways that you have approached your exegesis is to do the historical cultural study. I mean, you got your PhD for crying out loud under N.T. Wright's direction, right? Yes. So, um, yes. and then I kind of want to add, if I can add this question to it. One of the phrases that has become uh, part of the, the cultural conversation is to decolonize our understanding of the text. You yeah. are an Anglican, and I would yeah. love for you to speak. That, that feels like a tension to me of how yeah. to decolonize uh, a lot of the interpretations that we've had, um, but yet you are still an Anglican, and you have done deep historical study to get at the appropriate interpretations. Uh, so could you speak to that? Yes. I mean, I don't believe that everything that happened in Europe is inherently evil. So <laughs> um, decolonizing, I mean, I don't use that language, but I understand what they're saying. There is a way in which when one particular culture dominates the field and they dominate the discord, mm. that particular culture's issues sometimes can distort text and have us deal with things. That, I mean, it, it causes its own blind spots, right? So I do think that there are ways in which we need to balance out those blind spots. But it doesn't mean that I want to have the origin fallacy, like everything mm. that comes out of the UK because it was a part of the colonial empire 
is useless. And so and it's also not as easy as sometimes and not always decolonize your bookshelf or decolonize your theology actually stands as a code for this is stuff I didn't like anyway. And this is an excuse for me to toss it to the side. Mm, and mm. so I don't think there's something like, you know, the Trinity is a, is, is a manifestation of the colonial empire or that, you know, Christology is inherently imperialistic or something like that. And so I do think there's a difference between saying we need other voices to balance out the conversation and that Christian theology needs to be the work of the entire body of Christ and saying that everything that came before like the present moment is bad. And so I think that we have to hold those things in tension. And part of what it means for me to be an Anglican is to do that. And I think that one of the best solutions to that is both good history and acknowledging where you came from. And so I'm being unapologetic by saying I'm asking certain questions because I'm black in America. But that doesn't give me an excuse to ignore history or the historical grammar. I mean, like what the text actually is trying to say. And so I think that the best form of biblical interpretation occurs as a dialogue between my social location and the best readings of the text that I can and trying to struggle with how. I mean, if we want to believe that the Bible is God's word to us, to us not just the first century, that we have to say that the Bible is relevant to the issues of today. And if you talk about the issues of today, then it, whose issues get to be at the forefront? And I'm saying, well, black issues deserve their own space. And so it's it's yeah. it's a part of attention, really, is what I'm trying to say, is that it's not as simple as, like, I'm just going to toss away everything. Um, because we that, I, think, I think that that would ultimately do more spiritual harm than good. That's really, that's incredible to hear. I... This just came to mind. Do you feel like you're alone in that perspective? I mean, it it feels to me as if because a, a human nature has a tendency to polarize. You you, you yes. do this and then you throw that out, or you do that and then you throw out the other, etc. Um, yeah. And you are doing something very nuanced. Maybe it's I don't know if that's something that's in uh, you know innate to who you are because of your studies. <laughs> One of the things that um, the co-pastors at uh, our church and many in, in our community have suggested, uh, one of the reasons why we have appreciated N.T. Wright is that he's held this balance between the academy and the laity, that he hasn't given yeah. up either one. And what I hear you saying, I don't think we can overemphasize is so critical that identifying your your current intersectionality identity in this day and age and having to deal with that does not mean you therefore... Yeah, get rid of all of Anglican theology or all of Reformed yeah. theology or all of yeah. historical study. Right? Yeah, and I think I think the the important thing to understand, and this is where I think the African American Christian tradition. There's, I mean, there's tons of play, there's tons of avenues into this, and this is what I mean. The African American Church had firsthand experience with slavery, yeah. like the, at, at its origins, and the complete evils of like kind of a distorted version of Christianity. They separated from those spaces and formed their own communities. So there is a place where you're going to look for the authentic black Christian voice, where they had no desire or reason to please anybody. They was doing their own thing. What did they do? They took out the stuff that they found wasn't helpful. So they said, you know what? This whole like faulty anthropology, we're going to toss that to the side. This whole kind of you accept your station in life, we're going to toss that to the side. But they said over and over again, this relationship with Jesus thing is important. Hmm. These scriptures to us as God's word to our, for, to us is important. And so they are. And so what I'm saying is the test, the, the confessional statements that the African, the early black Christians drew up were overwhelmingly theologically traditional. Mm-hmm. 
reoriented towards kind of issue related to issues of social action. You can do the exact same thing by looking at the um, from a different perspective, the early African churches like the Ethiopian Orthodox Church or the Coptic Church, where they're once again, this is not the colonial empire. They're making their own theological statements, their own understandings of who God is. And they basically have said that these things that we think um, about what the kind of the great tradition is relatively um, secure. And so I don't think that as a Christian, as a Christian who owns his ethnic identity, that in order for me to be decolonized, I need to reject the things that my ancestors actually believed. Yeah. And, and, and what oftentimes happens, and this is, this may sound too progressive, I mean, too edgy, but what people do is to say, well, I'm going to decolonize my bookshelf. And so I go from reading like basically all conser- white conservative stuff to white progressive stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's just one form of like cultural imperialism for the other, not something that's actually indigenous, right? So both black traditionalism and black progressivism have their roots in like the main, in, in the evangelical tradition coming out of the Great Awakening and the progressive turn in mainline seminaries that kind of gives birth to um, public black progressive theology. So both of them have relationships to other strands of Christianity. And I'm not necessarily sure that one or the other is that much more decolonized. Mm, what I think mm. that is the African-American tradition either at its founding, or we have to say something like there is this thing called Christianity that I think predates white supremacy, predates the colonial empire that is accessible, that it's okay for me to believe in. Mm, mm. And so those are things that I think are important for me as a Christian. And so that means that I'm pushing back. Sometimes I feel like especially in chapter one, I do kind of say everybody's wrong, which is maybe an arrogant <laughs> thing to say. Um, but it is a way of saying like, I, I, I need to be able to feel free to be my black Christian self and to say, yes, I understand that Christianity has done horrible things. And I want to look straight into the eye of that, of the failure of the church and then say, but the Bible is still for me a source of hope. Yeah. And so that was the tension that I wanted to live in. And I didn't say that the Bible is a source of hope by ignoring those questions, but like thinking through those those questions, trying to come to the best reading of the scriptures that I could. Yeah. Yeah. What was so brilliant for me is that part of what you did is that you grounded your work in the one thing that is common to all of us, and that's the historical person of Jesus and the yeah. narrative, the the Old Testament, yeah. the Hebrew scripture narrative that leads up to the person of Jesus. And it does feel like in our per- particular day and age, um, I think I heard, uh, yeah, it was N.T. Wright who said, those who want to depoliticize, I'm getting ahead of the game here, but yeah. those who want to depoliticize Christianity also dehistoricize it, right? They, yes. they strip it from its history and its historical location. And in, in many ways, that is what allows the fracturing in our contemporary location, yeah. right? I mean, I, I read someone who said, you know, that Jesus or, you know, and the New Testament isn't is political. So like we're so, we're we're very political in our day. But, the, you know, we just they just focus on just preaching the gospel. I just don't think that we understand how intimately connected in the Greco-Roman world was the gods, the politicians yep. and the economics of the empire. Yeah. And so when you say right that all the gods are false and the gods are the ones who who kind of keep the whole system going it is inextricably political so it's only in the context of the separation of church and state that we can at all read what jesus said as i mean why do you think luke starts off in the days when uh, of caesar augustus you know why does he start there 
Because mm-hmm. she says the question raised by mentioning Caesar and Herod in the in the in the infancy narratives is the question of who's the true king of the world? Mm-hmm. Who's the true king of Israel? Yep. Is it Augustus? Yep. Is it Herod? Or is it Jesus? And if it if it's Jesus, and they say to they said that these Christians have turned the world upside down in the yep. Book of Acts. You think it's just because of religion? No, you saw. Sorry, I'm gonna. gonna, I don't want to preach too much. But when come on, when they come, when when they come, when they when they come in, when they come into the cities and the people are converted and it starts messing with the money of the city. Yeah. And there's riots in Ephesus because the gospel is upsetting the gods. You upset the gods, you upset the economics. When the economics get upset, they go to the powers to be and say arrest these people. You see how it was all tied together. Yeah. We managed. We managed to make the gospel not dangerous to people. I mean, politicians ought to be terrified of the Christians because mm. we should be the ones who tell the truth. Wait, 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 wait. Fall. Say that again. Say that again. The politicians ought to be tense because right. we're supposed to be the ones who tell the truth and let the tips fall where they may. Nobody should ever think that they have us in their in our in their pocket. Yeah. Right. We 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 are. We should be. We can be the truth tellers in society. Yeah. When we see injustice, when we see sin, we see brokenness. We speak about it. Yeah. Oh man! Sorry, this this be channeling. This this is like you know. You can see the influence of my advisor. You you Tom, need you need to. I'm not responsible for anything that I say. This is me. You <laughs> need to cease cease and desist desist from any apology whatsoever. Okay. You pre- preach your meat choir. You are you're in good company. However, <laughs> I would like to maybe either back up a half a step or expand the conversation in a direction because I I can imagine that there's still some people. Um, there, there's people in our audience and plenty of people that some in our audience have conversations with who are extremely reticent and hesitant with what you just said that they're yeah. like, like the, the idea of the gospel being political, um, it, it can't get in yet because there's still too many barriers. Yeah. So can we go through maybe, um, two, two particular pieces? You, we have the Romans 13 piece but then you also yeah. obviously ground your work in in the resurrection and the person and, and the historical work of jesus as well as deuteronomy 15 that speak to slavery so what i'd like to do is go to two particular locations the deuteronomy and the issue of the bible doesn't explicitly condemn slavery like that's one of the kind of criticisms that you're going to hear and address that and then go directly to romans 13 and maybe we can tease out your explanation of these passages kind of as a foundational argument for the gospel absolutely does have socio-political implications. Does that sound like a, yeah. is that okay? Yeah, so I'll, I'll do Romans 13 first, then I'll say something about slavery. Great. One of the things that I try to do in the chapter on Romans 13 is to say that like anytime you do on biblical theology, this is important. You arrange certain texts, you put certain texts at the center and other texts over to the side. And so the, the decision as a Christian to begin political discourse or political theology with Romans 13 is not something that, that the canon itself requires. Right. So what I mean is, how would we, how would our political theology be different if we began with the book of Revelation, which contains a sustained critique of the Roman Empire for its economic and um, social evils, right? And so you have these places where um, John calls Rome, the standing empire of the time, Babylon. And he's calling Babylon because Babylon is a type of corrupt empire that practices injustice. So then you can go back to the Old Testament and say something like, even in something like the book of Daniel, where King Nebuchadnezzar, read Daniel 4, read all the way to the bottom. 
And Nebuchadnezzar, we always hear how Nebuchadnezzar is condemned for his arrogance. That's also, that's true. But read what, he, what Daniel says. He says right before in the vision, like you're going to be, you're going to lose your kingdom. He says, therefore, stop your oppression of the poor. And it may be that God will have mercy upon you. Mm-hmm. And so this is, this is in the Bible. Mm-hmm. God holding a pagan king responsible for exploitation of the poor thing in the prophecies of Isaiah where not just the, not just the Jewish nation but nation after nation after nation after nation is judged precisely in part for, for a variety of things one injustice and so this as as you talk about the canon as a whole it's very difficult to say that the Bible never includes um, judgment of pagan kings for economic and political unrighteousness. Hmm. Jesus does it when you talk about Herod, when he calls Herod a fox. And, you, and, and the fox in his language means that Herod maintains and keeps his power by political manipulation. Hmm. That's what a fox was. So when Jesus says, they said, you know, they say to Jesus, Herod coming to kill you. And Jesus says, tell that fox. I have to go about my work. So when Jesus calls him a fox, what is he actually saying? Is he just saying that he's lacking piety? No, Jesus is saying that the current political king the current king in israel is corrupt and that he and, and that he gets his power by manipulation so what i'm saying is the bible contains sustained and consistent critique of jewish and non-jewish leaders for issues of injustice from throughout the canon that's just there now when you begin to ask about like romans 13 and when you kind of put these things together of course romans 13 says something like we should submit to rulers now as a christian we're not anarchist Right? We don't want to just like have violent revolutions all of the time. And so the Christian does say it is not within our purview. And, and this you have to read the rest of the book for me to talk about it in more detail. It is not within our purview as Christians to decide when God has called upon us to rebel. So we can't um, mm. claim in any moment divine sanction for whatever we want to do. And I think that's what Paul is ultimately like pushing to the side. But it doesn't mean that there's no pushback. It, like submission to the state does not mean acquiescence to the state mm-hmm. and the submission to the state in a democratic republic is what I tried to argue is much different than submission to the state in an empire because there was no you couldn't vote out the emperor. Yeah. So once the emperor was there, you just had to figure out, well, how do I be a Christian from until uh, Octavian dies? But now we're in a democratic republic. And if we don't like someone who's in power, you know, what we can do. We can vote them out. Mm-hmm. We can vote them out every two years. And so what does submission look like in that context in a democratic republic where Christians have the opportunity to vote for their consciences? And so the idea that we wouldn't vote in a way that increases the common good, given what the Bible says about the responsibilities of government more broadly, is kind of, um, to me, it, it seems par for the course that, of course, we would allow our faith to influence issues in the public square. I could say more about that, but I can push that to the side unless someone has some other stuff about it. I don't yeah. want to go too long. I can say a little bit about um, the Bible and slavery, but that's well, a little let bit. Well, me- let me ask because there's a there's the the catchphrase in that Romans 13 that the not only are we supposed to submit to our rulers or our leaders, um, but they've been put there by God. So there's yeah. kind of a sanctioning. So, but you have a you have a twist on that um, that yeah. I think is really important because we read that from our location to say God has sanctioned therefore this particular person to be in power. Therefore, we we just must acquiesce and give give up to yeah. them because of that phraseology so what's your twist on that phrase what I, what i what i said is that the bible speaks and like the emphasis is on the christian responsibility to the state but in the midst of doing that it also articulates the state's responsibility to the citizen yeah and it says that that this that if you've done nothing evil then you should have nothing to fear 
Mm-hmm. And so what I'm saying is this is basically the African-American claim. This is the request that we've made. We want to live free of fear. And it's fair to say, it's fair to say that in America, historically and in the present, African-Americans have had real reason to fear whether or not they're going to get a fair shake from the powers that be. Yeah. And so even even in the context of saying what the Christian should do, what the church, I mean, what the state should do. And this is the other thing. It says that the state does not bear the sword f- f- without cause. So what's actually what he's talking about there is that like in the Roman Empire, uh, you know, the emperor wasn't going around killing people individually or, or bearing the sword. He was directing the, the, the soldiers to engage in certain activities. Well, that means that he's Paul is actually talking about the culture. That the people in power are responsible for the culture of policing and soldiering that they create. And so that means that that I can say in a democratic republic, the people who are in charge of the government create a culture of policing, of judging righteousness and and unrighteousness for which they are responsible. So if the Bible says that it's, it's the job of the government to allow the innocent to live free of fear, and it's the job of the government to create a culture in which the sword is directed properly, I can say as a Christian... I see right now that the sword is not directed properly as it relates to my community, that we're not always fairly treated and that we have rightful cause for fear. And then this gets all the way back to the Democratic Republic and the Democratic Republic. I can say I am going to elect people who, who give the best chance for all citizens to live free of fear. Mm. And so what, what the whole point of that is that I think are the request of African-Americans in uh, as relates to injustice aren't these radical anti-biblical ideas it's the idea that we want the sword directed in our way properly we want to live free of fear mm-hmm. and so i just think it's really it takes a i think that at a certain point and, that, and this might be important for the for the audience to hear at a certain point the collective um claims of the african-american community if we're going to be brothers and sisters in christ ought to carry some weight. Mm. And so this isn't just like one black person or like one part of the black community. This is like a consensus that isn't rooted in some kind of media tricking us. It isn't, it's not a victim in none of that stuff. It is the collective experiences of African-Americans who said we have historically and are currently not being treated equally in this country. And so I don't know if there's a group of people who are more consistently not believed about this than it is black Christians who are not believed by some of their other brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah. And we just called effectively liars or stupid. Yeah. And, or like we could have 95% of us say one thing and there's two or three or 5% of us who disagree. And people say, well, these 5% are the black people who you should listen to. At a certain point, the collect, the consent of the, of, of Christians who believe the same Bible and worship the same Jesus who say this, ought to be taken seriously and ought not to be dismissed as some kind of secret ploy to destroy America or destroy Christianity. We just, we yeah. deserve, we deserve that kind of dignity and respect. I think, you know, I, I heard you in an interview and, and I, I want to be very sensitive and respectful. I don't want to call anybody out, but they, at the end of the interview, they said something along the lines of, thank you so much for your book. I mean, this is going to be such a gift to the church. And I think I understand what they meant by that, but the way the con- the way the context was, it kind of felt as if, oh, African-American biblical interpretation is giving the church some sort of hope. And I, I, maybe I misheard them or misunderstood, mm-hmm. but I kept thinking, but the African-American church is the church it's not a gift to the church it is the church and so even in our subtle language uh language ways in which we do that we 
we tend to tribalize and we tend to separate, you know, so um, you, you write on page uh, 30, this is to the Romans 13. The problem is not that according to their interpretation, Paul forbids rebelling against wicked rulers. The problem is the wicked rulers themselves. The issue I want to suggest is not merely exegetical, it's also philosophical. The path forward is not only found in a new exegetical insight, a new twist on a verb here or now and there. The way beyond the impasse is to pursue the logic of the text to the end. That struck me because I don't... Well, so there's two questions. What is the end? And yeah. can we even get there? Or is the emphasis on the pursuit of the end until heaven kind of a thing because yeah. i i was really i mean i i agree i'm i'm totally on board what is the end yeah. what do you see as the end and is there some sort of kind of concession that we all need to make that we are constantly pursuing that end rather than having an expectation that it's going to be realized i mean this is the big the big theological phrase of inaugurated eschatology we've started yeah. the end but we haven't quite got there does that question yeah, make what, sense? Yes, it does. What I would say is there isn't an answer to the question that relieves the tension. Mm. And so sometimes we want we want an answer that's emotionally satisfying that isn't supposed to be emotionally satisfying. Mm. And so the only reason there's a problem with submission to the state is what happens when the state is wicked. So it's basically a theodicy. It's a theodicy question. And there isn't an answer to the theodicy question that is anything other than Christological, right? The ultimate answer to the problem of evil in the world is Christ, both his incarnation, death, and resurrection, in which God himself enters into the human situation and redeems it from within, and his future coming in glory to judge the living and the dead. So if you ask any question that gets to the heart of the, the Odyssey question without those things as a part of it, then it's going to be a distortion. And so I don't think that Romans 13 is really a problem except for the fact that there's a fall, right? So the problem is the fall, that, that this stuff is broken. And so there isn't an answer to that question that can be solved other than by Christ's advent. Now that doesn't mean that we don't that we don't struggle to make sense of it. It just means that we can't ask these questions in isolation. And what, too often we say, "Well, what does Romans 13 say?" And this is what I must do. And I don't engage in a canonical theology. What does the wider Bible, wider biblical text testimony say about the issues of Christians and government? And how do I make sense of Romans 13 in light of that wider argument? And how do I put that question about Christians and government in, in the context of the wider Christian theology more globally? In this area, I think it's a subset of the problem of evil. Hmm. Because if the government was doing a great job, nobody would have a problem with Romans 13. Yeah. Yeah. And so logic to its end is to say that like there isn't an answer to Romans 13 that makes it easy for the Christian. I mean, even something like, yeah, so I'll, I'll stop there and say that's that's what I wanted to get at. One of the um, nuances of that is the shift that you also make that I think is very contentious in our um, kind of modern moment uh, in this particular cultural moment is the word systemic, um, which in some places is still very controversial, right? It's still part yeah. of our political discourse. You make a pretty yeah. clear cogent argument, um, and we've been talking about it actually just now, that yeah. the redemption and the gospel moving forward is, a use, you use the word structural, and I think that's yeah. obviously the right word. But there is a systemic implication to the word structural. I mean, would that be yeah. a modern? I mean, what we what we mean by systemic 
could be the historical analog to the word structural. So yeah, so go ahead. Well, I just wanted to. Uh, so I so a that's the question. Is that a correct analog? Can we can we do yes. that? And then two, essentially, is the gospel advocating for systemic and structural? change rather than the pervasive theology or I shouldn't say rather than I don't want to I don't want to be too confrontational um, yeah. but it's a much bigger picture than just personal I need to repent from my own racism I need to repent from yeah. my own uh, you know prejudices etc yeah there's a, there's a lot going on there especially in the way that we use language and I think that one of the things that we do is we try to sometimes argue around the definition of the gospel because we figure if I get it included in the definition of the gospel, then everybody has to pay attention to it. And one of the things that I just kind of say as an end run around that entire conversation is like what is and isn't a part of the gospel. It's not coextensive with what is a part, what is a part of Christian truth or the Christian tradition, what the Bible teaches. Hmm. And so I want to say the Bible teaches that that individual people sin. And because of their individual sins, they need to be forgiven by God and reconciled and all of those things. So like the individual idea of sin and salvation is in the Bible. It's just in there. But I also want to say that that same Bible talks about structures of sin. And the, the best way to talk about this is to think of something like the fall. And, th and this, is, this is not complicated. It's not, it's not critical race theory. This is just in the Bible. And this is what I mean. This is what, and, and I want people to hear me. If the Bible talks about people being sinners— in the individual sin, what happens when a sinner gets into power? Mm -hmm. When you mm -hmm. add sinful, a sinful person in power, what happens when you put three or four sinners in power in the same kind of economic area? And then they have something, let's say something like greed, which is much less controversial. Is it possible to say that you can get four or five greedy people to get into power and use their power to create structures in which they exploit their workers and maximize their profits so that you have a system of inherent injustice rooted in greed? That is not something that is theologically radical or rooted in anything other than like the implications of the fall. And so that can happen. And we can see it like we can see systemic lust that how like our desires affect every part of the American culture. And it distorts the human person. It distorts the female and male form. It's, it's pervasive in society. It's not just individuals lusting after individuals. It's entire corporations rooted in lust and covetousness that distort our society. So we see this. It's only in, as it relates to issues of racism that this becomes controversial for a variety of historical reasons. Hmm. The other, so like the, the only thing I'm talking about then is what happens when you have sin plus power in society. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't. So that that just exists. I mean, the other thing you were talking about is what Paul says about Christian about Paul's cosmology. That means Paul's view of the world. And Paul says this like all of the time. He says the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And then when you become a Christian, you're transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of, of the beloved Son. So he actually talks about a kingdom of darkness. What is a kingdom? Mm -hmm. It's a structure, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> With people in charge. And so Paul thinks. This is Paul. Read Ephesians. That spiritual powers influence the, the people who are running the country to create evil in society. Well, what is that? What do you think that a spiritual power might be tempted to do? Do you think that a spiritual power might be interested in stirring up racial animus? So if we're going to talk about the spiritual realm and Paul and kingdoms of darkness and kingdoms of light and then say the sin is only person to person, that seems to me like a sub-biblical idea. Mm. And so the idea that sin— can both be individual and a power, right? That exists in the world. It's just it's basic biblical theology. Yeah. And what tends to happen is we can say Christ either triumphed over individual sin or Christ triumphed over the powers of darkness. But the Bible talks about both of these mm. things. 
And part of what it means to be a faithful Christian is to have a gospel big en- or a Christian faith big enough to include both Christ's triumph over individual sin and death and the fact that Christ defeats the powers and the powers themselves are distorted. So when Paul calls, listen, this is what I want to say. In Galatians chapter 1 verse 4, when Paul calls the present age evil, what's included within that critique? Is it simply person-to-person evil, or is he talking about the whole society is corrupt? And the amazing thing about this is in other contexts, Christians will say it. The society is evil. The wor- We literally call it the world in Christianity. <laughs> Worldly, right? This is what we say. Right. So we actually acknowledge this. It's only like the category of racism that is kind of pulled out of it, and we kind of have an evolutionary understanding of racial progress. We said, you know what? The evil powers do everything else. The world is broken. There's lust. There's greed. But we managed uniquely in the United States to eliminate structural racial bias. Mm. That just seems to me, forget, forget the sociological stuff. That seems to me to be theologically untenable. That was brilliant. Um, I find your response to be really helpful and refreshing. I hope for the folks that are watching, because when we talk about systemic change, it is too clouded with our current socio context, sociopolitical context, where we introduce, you know, critical race theory and all sorts of different modern things. And you're just saying, look, just look at the Bible. It's, it's very clear. It's pretty simple, right? This, it's yes. not a, it's not a very complicated math, right? It's not. And so, I mean, yeah. so listen, Isaiah said, listen, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah says this, woe to you who add house to house and um, field to field till there's no room left for people in the land. Yeah. What is Isaiah talking about other than, 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 than people buying up on, property that forces you to pour out. That's yeah. Isaiah. And so what I'm trying to say to people is he, Christians were talking about structure. Listen, the Christians were the ab- what what was the abolitionist movement in the in in the UK other than pushing back on the system? Mm-hmm. So the idea that like systemic or structural sin exists is something that is not rooted in modern um, s- social thought. It's in the Bible. And it's in the entire Christian tradition. In the Anglican context, we talk about this again. When you're baptized, when you're baptized, there's three things that you reject. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Hmm. Three things that cause you to sin. One, your flesh, your own sinful nature that causes you to sin. And then it says the devil, spiritual powers. There's these spiritual powers that move me from God. And then it says this other, the world, Hmm. society itself that, 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 that makes it hard to live as a Christian. So what I'm saying is, in our tradition, at least, our very baptismal theology thinks that there's these wider structures of sin. Hmm. And so it is not. I want people to understand it is a thoroughly biblical idea. And it's actually and this is this is the sad part. The battle around, especially the discussion of critical race theory and these other things are distorting our readings of biblical text. Hmm. It's actually making us worse readers of the Bible. Hmm. And we're having to say things that are patently true in the biblical text aren't true. I mean, think of James, where James says to, in James chapter 5, y'all who are, who, who, the, who are exploiting your workers, read James. God's going to judge you. So then how is it that now we talk about something like unjust wages, it, it, it's something that's not biblical. Mm. These aren't, you don't need to know Greek, Hebrew, Latin, German, Aramaic. It's literally in the ESV and the NIV and the NRSV. Just read your whole Bibles and don't edit it, and you'll see what I'm talking about. It's not, yeah. it's not an agenda. It's just that I am trying to do and other people are trying to do to exegete these texts and say what they mean 
yeah. as Christians. Yeah, I love it. Um, for those of you watching, it looks like my video might have frozen, so it looks like my audio's going okay. So just want to acknowledge we might be having some technical difficulties here. Um, I'm going to head to the Slido questions after my last question to uh, Dr. McCauley, and then we will... Um, We'll bring it to a close because I know your time is precious. Uh, let's touch uh, very briefly on slavery because we just talked about systemic issues. Um, uh, you write, uh, I think it's page 139 here. On the first read, the Bible does not appear to say all that we want it to say in the way that we want the Bible to say it. And yet, this is the crucial part. The Bible says more than enough. The story of Christianity does not on every page legislate slavery out of existence. Nonetheless, the Christian narrative, our core theological principles, and our ethical imperatives create a world in which slavery becomes unimaginable. So follow that through, explain that for us, and yeah. and keep in mind, if you would, the person who are, is going to unequivocally and explicitly say, hey, the Bible doesn't clearly say it. So yeah. how can you well, make that I mean, argument? I think, I think that one of the things we have to talk about is the theological imagination. Um, and what I was trying to get at in, in this, in that chapter, is there's a, a bunch of different ways to talk about slavery in the Bible. One is the way is to say, well, slavery wasn't that bad in the Bible times. Therefore, like it's, we're a little bit less complicit and because what happened in the first century was much different than what happened in, in, in America. And that's, you know, there's some truth in that, but I think that nonetheless, slavery is slavery. And so I wanted to say, and you have to kind of read the, the entirety of the chapter to get to it, is to talk about what the Bible does as a whole. What happens when you begin to uh, um, read the thing as a canonical book? And so we've been trained in what we would call like slave master exegesis, where we're taught that the, the first and only question that you want to ask about slavery is like First Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. And what I want to say is that anybody who's doing theology, anybody, are arranging texts, emphasizing some, de-emphasizing others, and saying that these are the fundamental for understanding what God is doing in the world. And what I wanted to say is that the Bible itself creates a tension that the, I think in the providence he wanted to be resolved on the side of freedom. So, yes, you know, what happens when you have a book like Exodus as a defining mark for the Old Testament? When God wanted to, to recite his CV over and over again, what does he return to? I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. So I'm the, I'm the liberator and I'm the God who created the heavens and the earth. And so I want to so what the what the African-American Christian tradition said, it's fundamental for understanding who God was, was this idea of the Exodus. And so. When you say, well, which one of these passages, which one of these things should help me understand the Bible's posture towards slavery? Is it this entire narrative that becomes defining in the Old and the New Testament or a couple of passages here and there? And the African-American Christian tradition said, on the whole, when you read these texts and you ask what God's character is, it's oriented towards freedom. And I think it's more than fair for me to come to, to agree with my, my ancestors. The, the Bible read as a whole creates a world in which slavery is unimaginable. And I, I like to use this analogy of these phones that we have. And what I say is I always ask people, like, hold your phones up. And when I say this, it's like everybody acknowledges, everybody acknowledges that this phone exists possibly because of the economic exploitation of someone else in the majority world, right? Mm -hmm. There's someone who was not paid proper wages to make this phone and or our clothes or our shoes that a certain part of our economic reality exists because of the exploitation of other people. 
But and, but what we do is we haven't actually said that as a Christian you can't own a phone. What we said is we tried to we tried to get at the edges of it. We said okay, then let's see the least unethical of the of the phone and shoe companies. And so one day people are going to look back on this generation and say, how did those Christians who are one hundred percent clear about the evils and the exploitation of the third world, of the majority world, nonetheless continue to buy those shoes, buy those clothes, or buy those phones? It is because we have lacked the imagination to construct an economic system yet exploitation. But I hope that in the fullness of time, precisely because of the tension that the Christian faith presents in my own soul, hmm. that I'm consistently pushing back on that until we create something new. And so I want to say that slavery in a sense was, was, was analogous in this sense. Not that slavery wasn't horrible, but what, but what the Christian tr- tradition does puts pressure on the logic of the institution that should not have allowed the Christian conscience to be free until they decided the liberation was what God intended for, for all people. And the fact that it took Christians so long to come to that conclusion is ultimately like our fault, not necessarily the fault of the text themselves. Yeah. Fantastic. Oh, my goodness. Um, that's so good. Okay, we're going to go to Slido because I want to make sure we respect uh, the folks who have submitted some questions. Uh, let's start with an uh, easy... I'll be brief. <laughs> let's uh, start with an easy one. Given the themes in Reading While Black and your dissertation on Paul's view of the Abrahamic land promise, what do you think of the solidarity between many Black Lives Matter uh, BLMers and Palestinians? <laughs> Simple, right? <laughs> Yeah, I think one of the great things about being a New Testament scholar is realizing when you're at the edge of your competence. And I would say that, like, of of the things that I've read about the details of the Palestinian Black Lives Matter relationship, which is something I'm not I'm uninformed with. I would say, yeah, that's what I I would probably say that. But I would say that um, beyond that, yeah. I, I just I'm just not informed yeah. enough on the um, Israeli-Palestinian thing other than give you a platitude. Yeah. So sorry that I don't know more about that, but my, my skills are limited. Okay, well, let's bring it home a little bit more. In what ways do you see your dissertation on theology of land and inheritance speak to our country's history of conquest, removal, segregation, redlining, etc.? Yeah. Well, I think that this that part I can't answer. And maybe this will get to the Palestinian question, too. I think that what you see in is that the language of the land is replaced by the kingdom. And so it, the whole, the idea is that it all belongs to Jesus, um, the entirety of the, of, of the world, the, the, the known universe, that he then shares it with all people who are in Christ. And so there's a sense of there's a decentralization inherent in kind of the Christian understanding of like the the land itself that it all belongs to god and ultimately to jesus and jesus shares that with us and so i think that the general posture then of the christian who's going to try to embody that posture um is one in which they would create equal access to physical space for humans to flourish um rooted in the idea of and this is what i think the christian church job is more broadly they were witness to God's coming kingdom we can never fully embody it in any locale but we testify to it so in so much as we're saying I want to create spaces where very a variety of people can flourish um, then we're saying well this is a picture of what's going to come when Jesus comes and the fullness of human flourishing comes in so Christian standing for equal access to housing is rooted in this idea that we all deserve as human beings the opportunities and the rights to, to, to have access to the place to which our gifts and our skills 
provide entry to. And too often in this country and in other parts of the world, it hasn't been a matter of having equal access to land, food, water, and human flourishing. And so I do think that whatever we say about this, is where it gets to the Palestinian-Israeli question, is that we do have to find a way that um, both groups can flourish and a way that respects their common humanity. Uh, what is the best short-term way for a person who is not black to apply some of your insights in order to live and love more faithfully? I think that the, I wrote the book um, in a way that I make exegetical arguments. And so if my reading of these texts are right, then they are applicable in other contexts. So, for example, what I said about the African-American place in the Bible or African place in the Bible is basically saying the Bible is multi-ethnic in its orientation. So it's not exclusive to black people. What I said can also be applied as far as the Bible's concern for others to Asian-Americans, to um, Latina, Latino brothers and sisters, the First Nations, to Native Americans, the original people. So basically that idea of God's universal concern applies to everybody. And no matter who you are and where you're located, you can apply that to the universal concern for others that God has in your own context. And part of that could also involve something like um, finding ways to cooperate across ethnic difference in local communities so the church's joint witness um together and i want to say that goes beyond worship services it's actually saying like worshiping together is important but it's actually saying well, what does the love for my neighbor look like when i begin to apply it into like what their actual needs and desires and wants are mm, yeah all right last question from uh, slido how do you push back against those who think the quote-unquote only lens to view scripture is penal substitutionary atonement with liberation just being a nice to have bonus (laughs) (laughs) like i said read the read i mean i think that one of the things you have to be very careful of is putting things into competition that the bible doesn't put into competition Mm. and what i mean is i can say as a christian that i believe that christ died for my sins so that I can be forgiven and reconciled to God. And I can also say, I believe that God cares about what happens to poor people. And so sometimes we get so caught up with their limitations that we create our own limitations. And so I want to say for everyone is to struggle as best as you can, even in a polemical and a divided world, to continue to read the Bible well. Um, and continue to read the Bible holistically and continue to read the Bible in community so that, you know, that the things that we're lacking as interpreters are made up for by our brothers and sisters in Christ and continue to trust that that, that the God who created the world and inspired these texts continue to speak a relevant and changing world and changing word in our own day. Yeah. Um, this has been great. Thank you so much. I, before we go, I want to uh, end with this particular quote from your book and then have you uh, close on uh, a final word. And again, I'm so sorry to everybody watching regarding my video. Uh, maybe what I'm going to do is I'm going to see if I can make you full screen. So I'll go away video wise after this question. But y- you say on page 164, this book is not successful if it has been innovative. I have succeeded if it has reminded others of home. So before we go, that's such a beautiful line. Before we go, would you just close us with a final word that brings us all home? Yeah. um, I'm glad that you you talked about that. I was struggling um, with what I was attempting to do in the book. And what I finally resolved was 
I wanted, and I had two groups in mind when I said that. I could talk about the first group and the second group. The first group is I wanted black Christians to feel seen. And I would know that the book would have succeeded if someone said, that's stuff that I'd always thought and believed, but no one put words to it. And so that's what I wanted. I wanted people to have a memory of how they were shaped. But at the same time, I wanted the readers who are outside of the black community to say, you know what? We're actually not that far apart. Mm. That I recognize in the way that African-Americans talk about Christianity, the Christianity in my own practice. And so the book itself was is, is a practice, is a way of saying the African-American um, testimony to the gospel is ultimately a testament to the gospel. So that anybody who loves the God revealed in the scriptures might find in the African-American testimony something that they can identify with. And so what I would hope then comes out of reading my book is that African-Americans feel seen and heard and well represented in the pages. And I know I can't capture everybody's experiences, but I hope that it captures some. And the people outside of that context are really able to say in a genuine way that I understand the the gift that African American Christianity in the United States offers to the wider church. Mm, yeah. All right. Let's see if I can do this right here. Um, thank you so much, um, Dr. McCauley, for your contribution to this conversation. I absolutely love this book. But, well, both of them actually. <laughs> um, I love this book and uh, highly recommend it to everybody. I want to say thank you to everybody from Sequoia and the River. I see you guys commenting on YouTube. I really appreciate that as well as your uh, contributions to Slido. Um, it is our prayer that your work just continues to go out into the world and do what it was, uh, what what it is that you intended it to do. And we can't thank you enough for spending this time with us uh, tonight. So before we go, you have 15 seconds to argue why LeBron James is better than any of the... No, I'm just kidding. You are in Golden State Warrior territory now. So. I, couldn't say any, I couldn't give any Golden State slander because they would undo all of the, the good work that I had done. Yeah. I, just, I don't want to let all of the, the Golden State Warriors fans hear that. Y'all broke my heart three separate times. And it, it is real. It's only in Christ that we can be reconciled to being one community. Yeah. Well, we will we'll have you you back later to argue that and then i i think you'll have it'll actually be a debate so this was a nice conversation but if we have you back for that it'll be an actual debate so um okay dr mccauley have a wonderful night thank you so much and thanks everybody for joining us thank you thank you for having me